Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Uh, we'll kind of pick up where we left off last week in First Timothy chapter 1 here. I want to kind of touch on verse 15, which we did last week, and 16 we touched on. We're going to deal with that a little bit more tonight here. And then go into verses uh, 17 through 20 here. Uh, Paul's pattern, doxology, and, and charge is what I've titled the message here. Uh, thank you guys for leading us tonight. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to come together in Jesus' name, to study the Word of God, to pray, uh, to spend time in fellowship. And uh, Lord, we pray now that you would uh, bless all the ongoing ministries of the hour, uh, the Awana youth group, as well as our, our time together here as well. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, let's see. My slides, are they up? I don't, I, okay, I don't see it back there. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but uh, note, uh, we've got the church order here is the theme, and uh, we are working through this long section, Commands of Timothy regarding doctrine and practice, and he's going to tie it together here, uh, ver- starting really verse 3 and then through verse 20. That's really the, the overarching emphasis, as we will see in our study here uh, tonight. Uh, Paul, on his third missionary journey, planted a church at uh, Ephesus, and it's it's now about 10 years later. Uh, Elders are in place, but there's some concern about uh, what some are teaching, and it would seem that, you know, the teachers are the elders everywhere else, but it would seem that maybe got some elders that are a little bit off off track here. But uh, anyway, uh, Paul has uh, stationed Timothy to really stabilize what's going on there. And, and in doing this, he emphasizes the elder qualifications that we will get to as we get into uh, chapter 2 and 3 here. But uh, he has a concern that some have gotten into some legalism. Note that in chapter 1 and verse 7, he says uh, that uh, some have turned aside, verse 6, uh, desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So there's some legalism being brought into the mix here, wanting to mix law with grace. And the administration of God during this era that we live in is on grace. We teach the gospel of God's grace. And so he wants Timothy to emphasize that, and that leads into his testimony. If Paul's testimony was anything, it was a testimony of grace. And uh, let's uh, pick it up there, verse 15 and 16. Who wants to read this? A little bit of review here, but uh, who wants to read 15 and 16? Anita? Thank you. So, uh, again, this is a faithful saying, uh, really driving the stake down. seems this is a proverbial thing to say. It's stated five times in the pastoral epistles. When he wants to make a point, uh, something really uh, to be emphasized, uh, this is a faithful saying. And uh, here he says it is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am chief, or, or the foremost, the very worst, And so, uh, you know, there's an emphasis being made here in terms of who Christ came to save. Not only sinners, but the worst of sinners, as Paul uh, is emphasizing here. None are good enough to go in on their own, and none are too bad to be kept out, provided they come through the door, right? And we, we know what the door is, right? Yes, we do. 
Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. Last invitation of the Bible, Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. Uh, you say, well, I'm too bad a sinner. Well, line up behind Paul. Uh, you're, you're not too bad to come in if you want to. You got to want to. Nobody can do it for you. Uh, last invitation of the Bible, come, come, come. Whoever desires. You want to? You want to come? You can come, but you got to want to. Uh, invitation is there. Uh, you're, not too, you're not too bad to be saved. People say that. Well, boy, if I ever came to church, the place would fall down. Well, let's try it. We'll see. <laughs> they say dumb things like that. It's like, well, there's a few of us uh, who, saints in there. I don't think it's going to fall on us. <laughs> anyway, they say dumb things. All right. Uh, notice he continues then. However, for this reason, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Uh, however, uh, this is in light of what he has just said in terms of being uh, the chief of sinners. Uh, he's the great example. Uh, in his own mind, if God saved me, he can save anybody. Uh, God specializes in saving big sinners, right? I don't know if you fit into that category, but I'm pretty sure I do. Uh, I, I know myself, uh, I know where I was, I know, I know the struggles I still have. Uh, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy. Mercy is the idea of pity on the undeserving, intervening on behalf of, uh, you know, somebody that doesn't deserve it. And uh, I obtain mercy. He said back in verse 13, he obtained mercy because of his ignorance. Now he says, uh, uh, I, for this reason, I obtain mercy. Uh, that Jesus Christ might show uh, all long suffering towards him as a pattern. Uh, again, uh, God wants to use Paul as an illustration to make a point. Uh, as Paul saw it, I'm, I'm part of what God's doing as far as showing who can be saved. As far as great sinners, the chief of all sinners, he saved me. And so he says that in me first, really, this isn't the best translation, my new King James here. Uh, I like New American Standard better uh, as the foremost, me as the foremost, or the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, uh, the worst of them. Uh, I, for this reason, I obtain mercy uh, that me as the foremost, foremost sinner that he's just talked about, that Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. Again, New American Standard has perfect patience here. Perfect patience. Uh, I don't know, you have perfect patience? Maybe you have some patience, but perfect. Uh, that's long-suffering, long-enduring, putting up with a lot. And it's amazing what God puts up with. Like I say, uh, I kind of feel like Luther when he says, if I was God, I, I'd smash the world to pieces. <laughs> Sometimes you feel that way. It's a crazy world out here. Uh, God is very long-suffering and uh, puts, up with, puts up with a lot. And we know why he's putting up with a lot, right? I mean, Peter tells us. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. And we sometimes do think, oh, he's so slow, he's so slow. I was up to see Barb Harwood yesterday, and she said, he's just taking so long. I said, well, you know, his timing, yeah, but I wish he'd hurry up. <laughs> he wants to go home already. And, you know, she's just suffering there, so I do get it. But uh, God is sovereign, and uh, eh, he's not slow, really, as some count slowness. 
but is patient. There's the long-suffering word. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's waiting for more to come to repentance. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, praise the Lord for that. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got loved ones. I still hope, to get the, I hope they get in and say, well, boy, you've been left behind. Well, I hope you get on board before you're left behind. Even if you are left behind, I'm trying to leave some witness stuff around that, uh, you know, hopefully will impact you even after the rapture. But uh, he is, uh, he says, I'm uh, really an example. Uh, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's the pattern. Sets himself up as the the pattern. Now, uh, he's a pattern in that God saves great sinners. The worst of sinners, according to Paul. I mean, say the worst of sinners. And... uh, and then he's a pattern, I think, in terms of how God saves sinners. How does God save great sinners? Got a great sinner, how does God save them? Paul's the pattern. Well, that's what he goes on to say, right? Through believing on him. Uh, this is what Paul did. This is the pattern. He didn't say, well, I doubled down my efforts to try to be a good person. No, no, no. He was already a good person according to the law, according to the Pharisees, right? But no, uh, belief. Uh, so he's the model. He's, he's the great example in terms of uh, how God saves people. He went from being a sinner to a saint, from being a persecutor to a preacher, from being a, a murderer to a missionary, right? I mean, tre- tremendous changes in his life. You might call him Exhibit A in the life-changing business. And God is in the life-changing business. Paul is the pattern. That says no matter how bad a person is, Jesus can save them if they will believe on him for everlasting life. That's the pattern of Paul. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. It's good news for lost people, right? Really bad sinners. Think of the worst sinner you can think of. <laughs> I remember I was saved and I was talking to uh, a family member after I got saved. And I said, you know, if Hitler would have repented, he could have got saved. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, anybody, the worst of sinners. No one in their ignorance of unbelief is beyond the realm of God's saving grace. Paul is an illustration of this reality. Uh, so that's, that's, his, that's his testimony. And he says, to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's an example of, of saving faith. You have to believe on, not merely about. I mean, you have the Greek uh, preposition epi here. Uh, strong emphasis on believing on him. Uh, He's emphasized our Lord in verse 12, in verse 14. So he's emphasized that. And he has combined uh, the issue of faith and love in verse uh, 14. Remember what he said there. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Faith that issues in love for the Lord, for others as as well. But uh, this is the kind of faith that Paul had. I really believe that Paul had a lordship conversion. Uh, Look at his testimony, what he says here, Acts chapter 9. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Instantly a recognition of his lordship. The Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, I think somewhere between here and here, we got saving faith. 
Uh, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, we know that uh, Paul heard the gospel from Jesus Christ alone. Galatians chapter 1. He didn't hear it from any man. So, uh, you know, what was he told? Uh, Arise, go into the city. What was he told uh, he must do once he gets into the city? <clears throat> he was told to uh, arise and be baptized, right? But he already heard the gospel from Jesus Christ personally. He's very emphatic on that point in Galatians chapter 1. Um, Okay, we need to believe as Paul believed. As someone has said, well said, if you believe as Paul did, you will be saved as Paul was. Paul's a pattern for all those who are going to believe on Christ for everlasting life. Paul's personal testimony is recounted at least six times in the New Testament. It's a model that God has given to us that illustrates the nature of a true saving faith and that none of us are too bad to be saved if they will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I really think you have two great examples of saving faith in the Scriptures. First one is Old Testament, Abraham. New Testament, Paul. Uh, I mean, there's other great examples, but these are two premier standout examples in the Bible. Paul says he's the pattern uh, right here for those who are going to uh, believe on him for everlasting life. Notice he didn't say for temporary life, Right? Uh, some people believe in temporary life. I mean, they've got to get resaved all the time. Anybody want to be uh, saved again? I mean, you've fallen out of fellowship, you, you've sinned, and, and you're lost. doesn't say uh, that we might believe on him for intermittent life either, right? Uh, I mean, a once-in-a-while life. Uh, no. Uh, we have everlasting life. What kind of life is everlasting life? That's true. Uh, I'm looking for another qualifier. It's true. It's, it's everlasting in terms of duration. I mean, that's what everlasting means is e- eternal. It doesn't ever stop. What else might we say? Th- that's exactly it. It's God's life. How long has God had life? Did he, did he acquire life somewhere along the way? No. He's always, so we enter into God's life, and that relates to the quality of life that we experience, too, as well as the quantity of life. So there's a lot in this uh, everlasting life that we now enjoy in Jesus Christ. Uh, I like this testimony from uh, John Newton. John Newton, uh, he was a slave trader, turned his back on childhood faith of his mother, he had been taught, reveled in debauchery, got saved, and he wrote, of the three wonders of heaven. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all is to find myself there. Uh, It was John Newton who wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. In his old age, he said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that a great testimony? Uh, It lines up with what Paul is saying here as he sees himself uh, the the foremost of all sinners, the worst of all sinners, and yet Christ saved him. He's the pattern. God can save anybody, uh, the worst of sinners. You're a big sinner? Great. Salvation has been provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, any other thoughts there? Let's kind of review a little bit. Yes, Vince? Sure. I'm with you.
You know what, Vince, I think we're all probably wrestle with that. We see these people and, and uh, it's very easy uh, to have that perspective. And uh, we live in a crazy world. You do have to be wise sometimes, you know, too. But uh, yeah, that's very good, Vince. Amen. All right. Uh, anything else? Anyone else? Okay, let's have somebody. Uh, this now leads into doxology. I mean, Paul has just said, I'm the chief of sinners and God has saved me. Doxology time. Uh, that's fitting. Rolls into doxology. Who wants to read uh, verse 17, the doxology here? Yeah, Greg? Amen. So uh, now to the king eternal, uh, literally king of, of the ages. Eternity is literally ages of ages, uh, just age upon age, age rolls upon age upon age. And he is the, is the king of the ages, uh, king over all the ages. And the, the idea here is he is sovereign. He's in control. He reigns. Uh, you know, even now he rules in the kingdom of men, as it says in Daniel chapter 4. But to the king eternal. He's the eternal king. And then he says immortal. Uh, immortal means imperishable or incorruptible. You know, we're all susceptible, and everything in our world is, right, susceptible to what? The, the second law of thermodynamics, as the scientists want to call it, meaning everything is breaking down. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't care if you get rid of all the gas stoves. It's still breaking down. I mean, uh, is it even going to make a difference? Probably not. We're just going to die a little sooner. But anyway, uh, immortal. Uh, God is immortal. I mean, he's unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, God doesn't change. Uh, everything in this world's breaking down, but, but not God. Uh, God's immortal, and he's invisible. Invisible. When you think about this, you think of uh, what the Bible says about God being spirit, uh, we can't see God, as John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, uh, which is an interesting verse, and we are to worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Now, it is true that God has on occasion partially revealed himself in what we call theophanies, uh, either in the form of, a, of an angel or the appearance of a person in the Old Testament. Um, and he has most fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet the full essence of God as spirit is beyond seeing. Four times the adjective invisible is used of God in the New Testament. So it's interesting. He brings it out here. And we'll talk more about this in just a little bit. Which member of the Godhead is, is he talking about? Uh, well, king would seem to emphasize Jesus Christ. Invisible would seem to emphasize maybe God the Father, right? God the Spirit. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, to God who alone is wise. Uh, wise is not in the oldest manuscripts. Uh, more literally, I think, uh, it, and better would be here, uh, to the only God, to the only God. 
God alone is God. And uh, we find this all over the, all over the Bible again. Uh, God alone is God. Go back to Deuteronomy. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. I'm God. There is no other. There's only, there's only God. Uh, the only God. To the only God uh, be honor. Honor is that idea of uh, value, importance, worth, uh, intrinsic worth, and we are attributing this to him uh, for who he is, uh, the one who is to be valued, to be honored. And glory. Glory is the idea of exalting him, uh, lifting him high, having a, a high view of uh, praise is, is the idea there. Uh, and uh, when we think about giving God glory, uh, he is to receive the glory, right? Uh, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, double emphasis, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Not unto us, not unto us. Uh, Spurgeon said this, Perhaps, uh, it is perhaps one of the hardest struggles of the Christian life to learn this sentence, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be glory. Uh, we want to be careful to give God all the glory. I often, you know, pray that God help me not to be a glory robber. Uh, you don't want to rob God of, God of his glory. What, he, he's going to get it anyway in the end. But uh, we want to be exalting him and giving it to him. And then he says forever and ever. Again, unto the ages of the ages is literally what this says. Uh, a never ending uh, giving of honor and glory uh, to God. And then amen, a resounding affirmation uh, is the idea there. Uh, let's back up for just a moment here. And uh, I've got a quote from William MacDonald. Uh, the words of King Eternal seem to refer to the Lord Jesus because he is called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. However, the word invisible seems to refer to the Father since the Lord Jesus was obviously visible to mortal eyes. The fact that we are not able to distinguish which person of the Godhead is intended might serve as an indication of their absolute equality. <laughs> I kind of like that. And I like what Homer Kent says too here. Uh, he says, If one must distinguish, then this writer must assert that some of the terms fit the Father more easily than Christ. Invisible, only God. Uh, but he feels the explanation of the triune God is the solution to the difficulty. <laughs> uh, so, in other words, they're saying, you know, it really applies, in a sense, to all three members of the Godhead. You get talking about the qualities of the Godhead. You can't say, well, this applies. Uh, you know, you get to the invisible part, it gets a little more tricky because Jesus Christ, you know, did reveal God physically uh, in terms of uh, his manifestation while he was here on the earth. Okay, uh, any other thoughts before we move on? Okay, very good. Let's have somebody read verse 18. Who wants to read verse 18? Yeah, Jeff. Okay, thank you. So he's got a charge going here. This is similar to what, remember back in verse uh, 3, uh, I, I urged you when... Uh, I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so he's, he's uh, making that emphasis there, same emphasis. And, uh, you know, he talks about the, the commandment in verse 5. So we, we've got kind of picking up on that same emphasis here, the same concern 
that they teach no other doctrine, but they align uh, with the administration of God's grace, which is really the idea of, of the gospel of God's grace, that they, they be on that page. Uh, notice here, um, well, let's, uh, let me give you the ESV here, uh, the commentary. These verses, 18 through 20, together with the 3 through 7, form bookends around this section. That's true. Paul restates his charge, uh, see verses 3 and 5, and calls for a specific action against the false teachers. And so um, uh, that, is, that is true. That is, that is what we have going here. And uh, he says, I, I charge, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Uh, the idea of to commit to is, is the idea of to commit into somebody's care as, as you would a, a uh, responsibility, as you might uh, make a deposit somewhere, like in a bank or somewhere. Uh, it's, it's that idea uh, to commit to someone's care. And really the idea of what he's committing to Timothy here is that he be a defender of God's truth. A defender of the truth of grace uh, is, is the idea here. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that God, uh, we, the church is the pillar and ground of, of the truth. God has deposited the truth with his people. And he's really kind of emphasizing in a personalized sense with Timothy here that God has entrusted his truth with you. And I've, I'm committing this. I'm, I'm committing this charge to you uh, that you don't allow them to teach anything else, that you keep uh, the teachers there at Ephesus on track. And then he calls him uh, son Timothy. Again, he was very close to Timothy, perhaps even a convert of his. And then he says, um, the charge relates to uh, what has been uh, brought out in terms of according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, we believe this refers to a prophetic calling that Timothy had. Uh, you realize in the early church, they had prophets. Uh, we talk about the apostles had kind of a universal church ministry. Prophets were in local churches. Uh, they didn't have the scriptures uh, like we do, the completed New Testament. So they, God gave prophets, uh, you know, intermittently there, or not intermittently, uh, temporarily, uh, to uh, give forth New Testament revelation. And uh, part of that ministry here evidently involved prophecies concerning Timothy's calling. Uh, many think this is somewhat similar to what we have in Acts chapter 13, uh, where uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, were called. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was uh, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Clearly have these prophets who are used of the Lord to uh, enunciate and make it clear the calling of Paul and Barnabas here. Timothy evidently had some kind of experience like this as well. There was some kind of a prophecy about his specialized ministry calling. And uh, Paul is uh, referring back to that. Uh, he also alludes to this as we get into chapter 4, where he says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. Uh, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So again, this seems to be uh, uh, in relationship to his, his specialized calling, and there was prophecy involved here that affirmed it and so forth. And uh, so he's referring back to this uh, prophetic calling uh, to be a, uh, a defender of the faith uh, and his, his special role 
as uh, really an apostolic uh, assistant uh, here in the early church. And then he says, according to the prophecies previously made, we kind of like wish he would have expounded on this, exactly what were those prophecies. Uh, that, that would have been good, right? But he didn't. But we do get a hint that he says that by them, or according to them, according to what was brought out, you may wage the good warfare. Uh, this, is, uh, this was not an easy calling. It was a warfare calling. Uh, you know, warfare is never fun. You say, well, I, I want to join uh, the army so I can have fun. <laughs> yeah, right, see the world. I'm not sure you want to see that part of the world, but uh, yeah. Uh, warfare is, you know, it's like Paul says, uh, fight the good fight. Uh, warfare is, is about a fight, and it's not easy. Uh, you know, he'll tell Timothy, uh, as you get into 2 Timothy, uh, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's going to be hard. Warfare is hard. It's not easy. And so he says, uh, you know, keep the prophecies in mind. Your calling, your prophetic calling. And by them wage the good warfare. Uh, the battle over sound doctrine. The battle over the doctrine of grace. Uh, the battle with the false teachers that are bringing in legalism. Uh, it's, it's messy. It's not pretty. Uh, it's, uh, it's a battle. It's a struggle. Uh, fight the good fight. Uh, wage the good warfare. Not the flesh warfare, by the way, but the good warfare. What's a good warfare, do you suppose? What's a spiritual one? Yeah, and I would say without compromise, right? I mean, a good warfare, you're sharing the truth in love. I mean, that's p part of it, right? I mean, it's the spirit in which you carry on this warfare, not in the flesh. Uh, so you share the truth, in love, but without compromise. Without compromise. Uh, there is charging involved here. There is commandments. Uh, there is, you've got to insist. You can't, you can't uh, compromise uh, the message here. So he's emphasizing that fact. Um, now, when he says uh, <laughs> to uh, wage the good warfare... Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, waging a good warfare is, uh, you know, sometimes I'm sure you feel like giving up. You feel like quitting. Hebrews 12 talks about the, the sin which so easily is, besets us. You know, that, that I want to I just quit. Uh, I want to be like Demas. Uh, you know, let, let me just uh, <laughs> go somewhere else. and I'm just going to bail here. Uh, I want to go home like John Mark for a while here. Whatever. There, there's pressure all the time in that regard. And uh, it's interesting, too, here. Uh, you know, Paul is exhorting him as one who has been prophesied over. It seems to me there, were, there was local church involvement. Timothy was not a self-appointed warrior. He was recruited and appointed in the context of the local church, which is where the prophets were. In this case, he also had apostolic affirmation. Consistently in the New Testament, we find God works in conjunction with the local church. Rogue warriors are not validated by God. They are just out there doing their own isolated thing. And I think that's really important because every once in a while these people, uh, they, they say, well, I'm, I'm, I feel cold and I'm doing this. Well, uh, you got anybody uh, with you in terms of a, a local church that has kind of uh, ordained this particular ministry? You're just out here doing your own independent thing. There's a lot of those guys out there. I think they mean well sometimes, but yeah, I see Timothy functioning according to there was a, there was a broader perspective than just Timothy getting up one morning and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. Um, 
notice what uh, we have here. In telling Timothy to wage the good warfare, the verb is in the present tense. This is an ongoing thing. The emphasis of this military term is on, this is Grimacki, is on the entire war fought throughout the lifetime, not just an isolated battle. I think that's good. That's a good, that's a good uh, thing to emphasize here. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I often say to people, how goes the battle? Really, the issue at the end of the life will be, how did the war go? Uh, were you just there for a couple of battles and then, and then you left the battlefield? We stay on the battlefield. Uh, that's waging the good warfare. You, you don't quit fighting until you're done. You know, once you get shot through the heart, you quit. And, but <laughs> you don't, you, to wage a good warfare means you, you don't quit. You keep on keeping on. Let's see. I've got one more here. 2 Timothy 2.4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Uh, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I mean, the Lord is his priority. God's agenda is his priority. Say to Archippus, uh, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Again, I, I think the tendency is sometimes uh, to want to quit. You know when you're in the military, <clears throat> you know, you know uh, who owns you, right? You say, yes, Uncle Sam. Uh, the military, the government. I mean, you, you say, well, I can just do whatever I want to do here. You know, I, I'm, my own, I'm my own person here. Uh, no, you're not. Uh, you've got a higher command of authority over you in, in the war. And so it is with us. Uh, we serve uh, the commander-in-chief. We know who that is, right? It's Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, he, he's in charge. He's, he's the king, as we've already noted. And we serve on his terms, and the goal is to please him. That's the whole nine yards. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Anything else there? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, he needed some encouragement. A lot of encouragement, even. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was easy. And, you know, it seems to me there was some real leadership issues there at Ephesus, and confronting that is, is ugly. I always say that the, the ugliest thing in the ministry is when the leaders, uh, when there's not unity among the leaders. You get, you get leaders fighting, and, and I mean, you t I talk to my pastor buddies, and uh, I tell you, that's the worst thing in the world, uh, when there's, there's not unity there, and, and you have to deal with things that are hard. Uh, that's really tough. And I don't know if that was Timothy's, uh, Timothy wasn't a fighter by nature, it seems to me, which, I mean, we don't want to just be a fighter, but, uh, you know, I think he would rather just kind of take it easy and kind of just blend in a little bit. Paul had to encourage him and exhort him, that's for sure. And so he's, he's emphasizing that here. All right, uh, let's finish out verses 19 and 20. Who wants to read that? Yeah, Amy?
Thank you. So uh, now he continues his thought here. Uh, wage a good warfare. And uh, how do you do that? Well, one of the things involved here is having faith and a good conscience. Um, you know, first thing, if you're going to war a good warfare as a leader in the church, you've got to watch out for yourself, first of all. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, uh, Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, uh, Take heed to yourselves, then to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. First thing you have to do is, hey, am I where I ought to be myself here? And, and notice he emphasizes uh, faith and good conscience. He, he links faith and good conscience repeatedly throughout the book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5, verse 19 here. Chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, well, how are we to hold the faith? Well, certainly without compromise. And uh, when we think about uh, this issue of, of faith and a good conscience, uh, faith works in harmony with, with our conscience. Um, the whole of life for us as Christians should be the constant pursuit of maintaining a clear conscience before God and man. Both are important. This is how Paul lived. Well, he emphasizes that repeatedly. Paul warned that influencing a brother to violate his conscience is in effect to wound their weak conscience. This is a most serious matter. Uh, so we want, uh, you know, our, our, our faith, living out our faith uh, to line up with a, a good conscience. And then uh, to violate uh, your conscience desensitizes it to where one learns to live with a compromised conscience, which is a terrible thing. Eventually, it is no longer as sensitive as it should be. It lacks moral integrity. Faith governed by a compromised conscience is a compromised faith. Thus, Paul warns Timothy to maintain faith and a good conscience. As Paul says in 1.5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and from sincere faith. Uh, this is the end goal of sound doctrine properly applied. And so again, he comes back to this uh, waging a good warfare, uh, having faith and a good conscience. This is a good illustration uh, from uh, John MacArthur in his book, uh, Vanish The Vanishing Conscience. In 1984, an airline's jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill computerized synthesized voice from the phones or from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of the mountain. Everyone on board died. Uh, you know, the conscience is kind of like that. Sometimes it's saying, pull up. Uh, better, better maybe listen to your conscience. Now, it needs to be informed by the word. We're talking about, you know, a, you're going to have a conscience informed by other things. But if, a, if it's informed by the word, you better listen. You better listen to the conscience and, and have a good conscience in that sense. So maintaining faith with, with a good conscience is really the essence of uh, in, in, in primary involved in, in waging uh, the good warfare. And then he says, and here I think he gets to where he's really uh, wanting to go as far as his concern in the, late, in the greater discussion here, uh, which some have rejected. They have rejected a good conscience uh, concerning the faith, and that has resulted in spiritual disaster. Now the question is, are these believers or, or are they not believers? Uh, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered uh, shipwreck. And he mentions these two guys whom I've delivered to Satan. Well, uh, let me cut to the chase. There is not agreement here, right? There's disagreement. Some think they're not saved. 
Some think they're saved. Let me uh, pursue this with you just a little bit. Uh, ESV study Bible. Uh, the most, this most likely refers to false teachers who claim to be believers, but had fallen away from the faith uh, they initially professed, thereby showing they were never truly converted. Uh, earlier in chapter 1, some of the things that he says might lead you to that uh, conclusion. Uh, but uh, again, it's not really clear. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, Hymenius for just uh, a moment here. Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul again named Hymenius, whom we believe is the same person here. Uh, Paul says he strayed concerning the truth in verse 18. Then in verse 19, he says, the Lord knows uh, those who are his. This would lead me to believe it was questionable in Paul's mind whether this person was saved. But even he was not definitive and left it with the Lord. Uh, the Lord knows. You know, ultimately, God is God. He makes the final call. And sometimes it's kind of hard to know. And I, maybe Paul's just kind of, well, the Lord knows. But then he does say, let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. It, uh, notice uh, some have rejected this uh, good conscience concerning the faith. Now, he's not talking about personal faith at this point, although there's some overlap. But uh, the faith really refers to the apostolic body of truth that's been given to the church, uh, New Testament truth, the New Testament faith. And uh, it's good also to note, uh, he goes on to say, uh, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, that seems to be remedial, remedial in emphasis, right? Uh, to bring about some correction in their, in their lives. And so uh, it would seem that he's hopeful that this action will bring about change in their lives. And really seems to relate almost more to discipline. than uh, and, and, you know, God disciplines his children, but not unbelievers. Uh, so uh, that would maybe be an argument for uh, they're, they're actually believers. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Right. I'm going to get there. You no, know, no, you're, you're fine, no, but you're right. This is not, that's part of uh, the thing. When he talks about uh, have suffered shipwreck, uh, you know, shipwreck is the idea, you, you got a disaster. You've got great damage being done w with shipwreck. Uh, let me quickly uh, go through a few things here. Uh, their message will spread like cancer. Here's the illustration of cancer. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth. Again, here, the faith. Uh, saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So these guys are causing all kinds of damage. Uh, there's, there's problems with these, with these guys and, and what, they're, what they're teaching. Um, it is possible uh, for a believer uh, to have his faith overthrown at least to some degree. 2 Timothy 2.18 says they were overthrowing the faith of some. This does not mean they lost their salvation or they were never saved. Rather, it means that they were seriously off track. A true believer will never completely and finally abandon the faith fully as seen in 1 Corinthians, which says you are saved if you hold fast to the gospel message. And yet, as I bring out here in my next slide, however it is possible to compromise the message, even as Paul, Peter and Barnabas, I mean, these guys, of all people, I mean, uh, were guilty of doing Galatians 2. They had not abandoned the faith in the sense of apostasy. But as Paul says, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So serious was this that Paul withstood Peter to his face and severely rebuked him. 
All this to say believers can, to some extent, compromise the faith and still be believers. Uh, exhibit A would be Peter and Barnabas in, in that regard. But uh, and then he mentions uh, them by name. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's appropriate to name names. He does. He calls these guys out publicly in the letter. Uh, and uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, they are representative, I think, of uh, the false teachers earlier in the, in the chapter, verse 3, 6, and 7. Hymenaeus and Alexander were very possibly in teaching positions, uh, perhaps elders, which, you know, elsewhere we find elders are really those uh, key people in teaching positions, in the church and had some leverage. Uh, perhaps this is why Paul dealt with him directly with apostolic authority, which is strong in the letter. This required apostolic intervention. Most think Hymenaeus is the same uh, mentioned in 2 Timothy 2. Alexander was a common name, and, is, and it is not certain that he should be identified with Alexander the coppersmith mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, although that is a possibility. Okay, and then he says, whom I have delivered to Satan that they may learn not to, not to blaspheme. This is the language of church discipline. Uh, it's the language that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Same language for the destruction of the flesh, that the, his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, severe church discipline where the person is, in effect, uh, pushed out into the realm of Satan without the protective hedge of the church fellowship. And there is, I think, a hedge of protection that comes with being in the fellowship. And when somebody is excommunicated, uh, put out into the realm of Satan, uh, they are vulnerable uh, in, in many ways. Uh, so, um, notice... Uh, here in terms of uh, what is being said. Note carefully that the desire is that they will learn from this. You catch that word there? Uh, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Uh, the goal is still one of restoration, it would seem. Uh, the word learn is commonly used of God's discipline of believers in the New Testament. It's often translated as chasten. So note those cross-references. Specifically, the desire is, is that delivery to Satan will teach them not to blaspheme. Speak irreverently. Uh, you know, they're off track. Blasphemy is in the present tense, showing that they had be this had become an ongoing pattern for them. Okay, well, uh, let me end with this. Uh, I like this quote. We don't know, it's a lot of times attributed to Martin Luther, but we don't know that Luther actually said this. There's other possibilities. So we don't really know who said this, but it is a great quote. Uh, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all battlefields, uh, on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. <laughs> I love that. Wage the good warfare... Uh, you can't say, well, on, on these three fronts, we're doing great, but we're just going to leave that wide open over here. No, uh, where the battle is raging, a faithful soldier is going to do what needs to be done there. And Paul is exhorting Timothy to that end here in chapter 1. All right, any other thoughts? Yes. So, this is written to Timothy. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. 
maybe a little before 64. Around. Around. Right, around. Um, yes, I think so. So we can correlate what finds this five might look as far as far side by looking at the armor of God. Oh, that's good. Yep. Okay. And of course, Ephesians, we think it was a circular letter too, right? Yeah. So it has universal application. Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, I would think so. I would think so. And I mean, Paul had personally talked to those elders earlier after I depart, I know some of you, you know, will go off the rails, it says, trying to build disciples after themselves and so forth. Yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah. Right. If they're holding to the true gospel, yeah, you're right. The gospel is the ultimate, you know, divider as far as those who truly believe the gospel and those who don't. So, yeah, that that is the core ultimate issue right there. But then there's other issues, you know. Um, there's like this. The reason I thought Paul and Barnabas was such a good illustration is because they knew the gospel of grace and they believed it, and yet they seem to be kind of siding with the legalizers a little bit uh, on this want at that point there. And so I think it's possible for believers to kind of get off track a little bit, even though they have personal faith, they know better. I always think about these people who go to these baptismal regeneration churches. I don't get it. It's like, how do you go to a church that teaches you have to be baptized to be saved, and yet you claim to believe uh, in grace like we believe in grace? I never understand that. To me, it's a, it's a, it's like warfare. The good war, uh, waging the good warfare, you're going to stand on the gospel of grace. This cannot be compromised. And uh, but I think there's people there that are true believers. Uh, they're I don't know for whatever reason they're compromising, but anyway, I try to talk to them once in a while, usually short conversations. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Anything else? Okay, let's share some prayer items here. <clears throat> 